Welcome to another episode of Clock Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director. I'm Jamil Abdul-Raymond, Hematologist from Toronto General Hospital. We're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews with authors of recent research publications and highlights of education programs from Thrombosis Canada. Thank you for joining us for this episode. In this episode, we will be discussing a recent paper published in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis entitled Diagnosis and Management of Severe Congenital Protein C Deficiency, Communication from the SSC of the IFTH with co-authors Dr. Maha Othman and Dr. Leonardo Grandale. Dr. Othman is a clinical pathologist and hematologist with specialized training in hemostasis laboratory testing and molecular genetics of bleeding disorders. She obtained her medical degree and master's in clinical pathology in Mansoura University in Egypt. She then completed her PhD in pathology from Southampton University, UK. After this, she pursued postdoctoral research training in molecular genetics and hemophilia and von Willebrand disease with Dr. David Lillicrap at Queen's University, Canada. Dr. Osman is currently a full professor at the School of Medicine, Queen's University, and at St. Lawrence College, Kingston, Ontario. Her research interests include clinical and molecular aspects of von Willebrand disease and platelet disorders, particularly PTVWD and thromboelastography assessment of coagulopathies in women, pregnancy, and cancer. She has more than 100 research papers, and her research is recognized internationally. She is an editor for seminars in thrombosis and hemostasis and research and practice in thrombosis and hemostasis journals. She's a reviewer for a number of hemostasis journals and a member of several scientific organizing committees on women's health and advisory boards for international hemostasis conferences. She is the previous chairman of the Scientific and Standardization Committee on Women's Health Issues with Thrombosis and Hemostasis at the ISTH and currently co-chair on the IST on the SSE for DIC. He is a passionate educator and mentor and an advocate for rare bleeding disorders and bleeding and clotting disorders in women. And Dr. Brandeo, who is a native Brazilian who joined the staff at the Hospital of Sick Kids in 2004. Since 2019, he has been the thrombosis program director. He obtained his medical degree at the University of Sao Paulo School of Medicine before moving to North America, where he completed his postgraduate training at the pediatrics residency at Emory University, Atlantic, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Pediatric Hematology Oncology Fellowship at St. Jude Children's Hospital uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and the second fellowship in Pediatric Coagulation at Will Cornell University in New York. After finishing his training, he moved to Canada to focus on the field of pediatric thrombosis at SickKids. He is the past chair of the Thrombosis Committee for the Canadian Pediatric Thrombosis Hemostasis Network, past Canadian representative-elect for the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Research Society, past member of the first pediatric venous thromboembolism panel for the American Society of Hematology, past co-chair of the Pediatric Thrombosis Subcommittee for the International Society on Thrombosis Hemostasis, and a member of Thrombosis Canada. Thank you for participating in our podcast today. It's great to have you both here, um, and we're looking forward to the discussion today. Um, to start, could you give us a bit of background on severe congenital protein C deficiency? What is it, and how does it manifest? Well, thank you both, David and Jamil, for having us and highlighting our paper, which we are very proud of. So protein C deficiency is a genetic disorder that results from variations in the protein C gene. And we're talking about protein, uh, the protein C, which is a natural coagulation inhibitor. Its job normally is to inactivate uh, coagulation factor 5 and 8. So we're talking about a rare disorder that is typically one per 4 million births. But the true prevalence is actually much less uh, because of the uh, fetal demise and the many undiagnosed neonatal deaths. Uh, 
So typically that disease uh, presents with the purpura fulminance and DIC, which are severe form of intravascular thrombosis that happens in the derms of the skin. Uh, and that's uh, together with necrosis of the skin. So really bad uh, presentation which happens early in, uh, in uh, at birth. Uh, we're talking 72 hours of birth. Sometimes occasionally happen later in infancy. But you can get also thrombosis in retinal and uh, cerebral vessels. Uh, blindness is unfortunately a common complication in survivals. You can, in the pre in the absence of uh, uh, perpropulminans, you can get cerebral infarction with or without hemorrhage. And um, you can also get hydrocephalus, which is some neurological sickly uh, eventually. Stillbirth, uh, if it happens with evidence of intracranial hemorrhage, usually raises the, the possibility of severe congenital protein C deficiency, especially if it's in consang consanguineous families. So those are the typical presentations. And uh, uh, we have two types of this disease, the typical quantitative type one, which is the most common, where you measure plasma uh, protein C and it's reduced because of reduced synthesis. And there is a qualitative type, we call it type 2A, which uh, happens as a result of uh, impaired function, the proteolytic function of this protein. A very rare type known as type 2B, where the reduced uh, function here is resulting from uh, deficiency in binding between protein C and the coagulation factor 8 and 5 and phospholipid. So that's just a rare type, but the common type is a type 1 and 2A. Thank you. And why did you and your colleagues feel there was a need to devise this guidance? So that's actually a very good question. So I must say, in the recent few years, there has been two great uh, publications. The first one is ASH guidelines in 2018, which included the treatment of pediatric venous thromboembolism. And the second is ICH recommendation in JTH uh, journal, which happened in 2020, that included the clinical laboratory testing for protein C deficiency. Throughout these years, we still recognize that the diagnosis remains a challenge, and there are many uncertainties with the treatment. What is the most appropriate regime for acute and long-term management? And what is the best route of administration of protein C? Is it the subcute? Is it the IV? So what happened is at the level of ICTH, three sub scientific subcommittee put their heads together. Those were the plasma coagulation inhibitor SSC, the pediatric neonatal thrombosis and hemostasis SSC, together with the women health issue, issues in thrombosis and hemostasis SSC. So we met together, we created a dialogue, and we uh, basically worked on this guidance together. What happened is we had a meeting, and then we basically uh, put a joint session together at uh, two years ago in the ISTH main meeting. And we presented and discussed this with the scientific community, and hence the document that uh, was published recently in JTH. Okay, great. So could you tell us a bit about the lab investigations needed to diagnose severe congenital protein C deficiency? Should we be doing protein C activity testing, chromogenic assays, genetic testing? What kind of testing is involved in the diagnosis? Yeah, well, I think this is very important. So we definitely have the two. We have the lab phenotypic testing and the genetic testing. 
And if we talk about the lab phenotypic testing, we can measure the antigen level, the plasma protein C. Normally, it's 0.65 to 1.35 international unit, and you can see reduced plasma PC uh, that helps diagnosis. The functional assay, though, uh, are two types, the chromogenic assay, which is based on enzymatic reaction and color uh, change. And this is the recommended uh, test for screening, and it is it has high specificity. However, unfortunately, this test uh, is unable to detect the rare type, uh, the type 2B, which is the, the, the binding type. And in that, we could do the clotting-based assay, which is capable for detecting that type. However, we have to recognize it still has some reduced specificity. I must say that we need to repeat the testing more than once, and that's for the lab testing. In terms of genetic, this is good to confirm the phenotype, of course, and it uh, it's an adjunct to the to the test uh, to the phenotypic testing, and it also is very helpful when it comes to pregnancy and prenatal diagnosis uh, for subsequent pregnancy to uh, assess the situation with the baby. Okay, great. So let's look at the, uh, the management. So with the acute management of severe congenital protein C deficiency. Should we be looking at replacing protein C or should we use anticoagulation or how, how do we manage this? Thanks for your question, Jamil. Um, there are, um, so to speak, many ways to peel this orange. Uh, mm. The severe deficiency of protein C, as Dr. Othman men mentioned, will ultimately lead to an uncontrolled uh, activity of the, of the coagulation cascade or processes as a whole. And depending on the delaying in recognizing it, we can have different degrees of, of clinical presentation. For example, it is not uncommon that these patients may develop what ISTH would label as overt DIC, accompanied, accompanied or not by the laboratory findings such as severe thrombocytopenia, uh, coagulopathy that is at least moderate to severe, accompanied by both in one spectrum or one side of the spectrum, bleeding events, particularly intraocularly and within the central nervous system, and the opposite spectrum, also accompanied by non-catheter-related deep vein thrombosis. So in instances like this, that you have pre a patient presenting with both opposite sides of the cascade, life-threatening bleeding, and eventually life-threatening thrombotic complications, their management can be very complicated. To begin with, what you ask for, which is to provide some form of protein C replacement, is certainly indicated. And it could come either in the form of replacement with plasma until you have confirmation of the degree of deficiency of the protein, for example. And also in the instance of DIC to replace additional coagulation factors that are also missing and followed by replacement of protein C in the form of protein C concentrates. To date, there are two plasma-derived protein C concentrates available. One that is more globally available, uh, it's a protein C concentrate named Seprotein, uh, done by the pharmaceutical company Takeda. 
which is available, as mentioned, globally, there are there will be a little bit of minutia on how to prescribe or prescribe it, excuse me, according to route of administration and patient age. What I mean by that is that it can be given uh, intravenously or subcutaneously with the caveat that the subcutaneous administration uh, would be considered off-label. And the half-life of protein C would also vary being between six to 10 hours if administered intravenously or slightly longer, up to 16 hours if administered subcutaneously. I need to make a remark that if the patients have ongoing DIC, the half-life can be drastically excuse me, reduced uh, somewhere between two to three hours. Um, I mentioned one of the plasma-derived concentrates there is a second one available mostly. Uh, it, it's it, um, available mostly in France, and both have literature showing their efficacy and safety. The French one is, is I think, um, done by LFB, uh, the the industry that was responsible for for uh, its manufacturing. And there is a third one available only in Japan which is also plasma-based, but it contains activated protein C. There was a fourth one, which is no longer available. Now that I've summarized quickly, even though this was a long answer, about the availability <laughs> of protein C concentrates, the issue of using an anticoagulant will depend on controlling any eventual life-threatening bleed and also the identification objectively of a thrombotic event. And then anticoagulation, primordially with heparinoids uh, of, and then subsequently oral vitamin K antagonists has been endorsed by this guidance document. Uh, this is an overarching answer and we can explore more details if you want. Thank you. That's very helpful, thank you. So if there's no acute VT identified, there's no anticoagulation, is that correct? Um, now, it is not uncommon, though so I'm gonna divide, let's say occlusion of a venous territory or arterial territory as thrombotic events, and the not uncommon phenotype that comes together with cutaneous manifestations of so-called purpuric lesions, purpura fulminans, as microvascular right. thrombosis. So the mm -hmm. role and a third element, DIC, because there may be clinicians that believe even for the macrovascular thrombotic events in the skin and the DIC, there may be still a role of smaller dosing of anticoagulation to, in, to increase the velocity of correction for those. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And how about for long-term management? Is there long-term use of protein C replacement or anticoagulation? Absolutely, the, the hallmark uh, therapy, because all of these abnormalities that were mentioned were caused by the absence or almost complete absence of protein C as a natural anticoagulant inhibitor. So the administration of protein C is paramount. The problem is that 
from an, a patient advocate perspective, uh, these one unit of these two plasma con uh, proteins concentrate provide an in increment of 1% in the circulation. And these individuals will usually, the SCPCD patients usually will require replacements on a daily basis or every two or, or every three days. So lifelong, this represents a, a tremendous cost uh, to patients, families, and societies. But, and investigators have realized the anticoagulant aspect uh, help with increasing the recovery of protein C concentrates when administered concomitantly. So even in the absence of a thrombotic event, be it for acute management, even though I've mentioned the microthrombosis may be a reason, and secondly, for long-term therapy, the concomitant use of anticoagulants, be it in prophylactic doses or full dose, represent the portfolio of options clinicians may use uh, to optimize reaching of a status quo that allows patients to live without complications. Uh, we can expand a little bit more if you want, Jamil. These, may, these answers may be too overarching. Yeah, that, that's that's helpful. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of data in the, in the guidance statement there. Um, one, let's move on to pregnancies. Could you tell us a bit about the role of preconception care and the counseling? Yes. Uh, thank you for that question. And it's a question that is uh, uh, not uncommonly forgotten. Appropriate counseling of a couple that would have just had a child with a severe congenital protein C deficiency. Parents that are found, both of them, if they had that child with SCPCD, to have monoallelic uh, mutations to the so-called PROC PROC genes should be informed that for subsequent pregnancies, they would have a 25% chance of having an older child with a similar phenotype and counseled accordingly about their reproductive options. For example, if the specific genetic mutation is known, at-risk parents should be offered prenatal diagnosis testing, either by what is called chorionic villus sampling that should occur between weeks 11 and 14 of the gestational age, or amniocentesis, excuse me, after week 15 of pregnancy. I should also remind uh, the audience that those procedures do not come uh, harmless. They are associated with a risk of pregnancy loss as high as 1%. Secondly, uh, if a prenatal diagnosis uh, is a decision the couple wants to pursue, it could be and perhaps should be followed by early delivery of an affected fetus if that is confirmed hopefully around or between 32 and 34, 34 weeks gestational to potentially prevent long-term visual and neurological impairment. So Leo, maybe I should uh, ask you here. So the timing of you know, early delivery, um, preterm uh, pre delivery, 
is a difficult decision. Obviously, some ladies would, you know, decline um, this this option, and they would want to have the pregnancy go longer. Of course, there are risks and benefits to continuing the pregnancy. So, how do you how do you counsel the the patient at this time, and how do you help her make the decision? Uh, thank you, Dr. Altman, for bringing this uh, because it's vital to recognize there. Uh, the need to undertake a multidisciplinary approach um, reflect that it, that would be reflective of the complexities involved that you allude to. So the local team would need to know, by local, I mean the ob team, the neonatology team would need to be able to counsel that, that couple about possibilities, for example, to have a 32 or a 34 weaker uh, newborn uh, and the conditions the neonatology team would have to support that. On the other hand, the obstetricians should also be able to assure the parents that there are drugs available to administer the mother to speed up maturation and prevent uh, uh, preterm related complications and also to be able to ensure there would be security from a maternal point of view on the delivery, on an earlier delivery, should, be, should that be the decision that uh, is favored upon. Uh, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I may want to add to that, uh, of course, different countries have different levels of, of care during the obstetric uh, delivery. And for those international uh, people who are listening to us, uh, again, the physician and the multidisciplinary team can decide whether 34 or later uh, weeks would be safe for the baby yes. on, uh, and, and how safe and how much neonatal support is available at that country, at that level, at that facility. Don't you agree? Uh, fully. And perhaps for completion of the discussion, uh, I fail to mention other options particularly if the couple decides not to pursue with prenatal diagnosis and pursuing hearing that there is a 1% chance of loss of pregnancy. So right. even if that is declined, the option of early delivery at 34 weeks should still be discussed with the parents. Secondly, something that is still part of, of points in the table is the option of termination. Uh, right. and uh, Earlier on, that should also be discussed with the parents. Right. And of course, the 25% chance of having a child with severe con uh, congenital protein C deficiency each pregnancy and the high risk of blindness and neurological complication. I know as, as much as uh, unfortunate it is, but I think uh, awareness of that would, would be useful. Yes, absolutely. Now, there, allow me to uh, bring something uh, for the listeners to understand the complexity of uh, early diagnosis, which is vital for appropriate management relating to Jamil's question. Whenever we talk about interpreting uh, clot-based or, or, or um, coagulation testing in children, we need to remind ourselves the comparison needs to be done to age-appropriate controls. Mm -hmm. At birth, especially in premature uh, infants or newborns, the physiologic normal for age levels of protein C 
approximate or are exact the same levels as someone that has heterozygous deficient levels for protein C, but that is normal for that age. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it may be complicated unless you have levels that you've summarized the appropriate laboratory methods uh, in terms of testing. But unless they are tremendously low, lower than 20% or lower than 5%, then you have more assurance. But not uncommonly, you may have levels that are not tremendously low and you have a phenotype complicated by infection that makes it uncertain about the degree of deficiency. Regardless, the principles of care would probably be similar. I just want to mention it uh, so that we open to scenarios that may also occur to the listeners. Of course, these are very important points. And, and what about cord blood testing after delivery? Um, I mean, the levels of protein C, if especially if early de- delivery, this may not be reflective, right? Exactly. Thanks for reminding us of that. And also about then little nuances when one is comparing the different methodologies you mentioned. For example, we clinicians should be mindful of laboratory pitfalls, mm-hmm. other clinical scenarios that may falsely elevate or falsely decrease protein C levels. Uh, of course, warfarin decreases, liver conditions decrease right. it. Chromogenic in comparison to clot base may give levels that are slightly higher. So all of those nuances uh, highlight the importance of, of a multidisciplinary team approach whenever facing uh, such scenarios. For sure. So are there any other guidance statements we've not discussed today that you'd like to bring up? And or anything else that you'd like to uh, to mention? So I think this is great. Uh, we know that the condition is rare, but very uh, critical. Uh, it is a critical uh, situation also that has uh, lots of emotional and psychological uh, impact for the mother, for the parents, uh, for the couple. And I, I want to emphasize the importance of preconception counseling um, and the, you know, the discussion that needs to happen early in the antenatal care, maybe perhaps in the first visit. And uh, those are key things that will determine a lot of, you know, action taken at the towards the end of pregnancy. The other thing I may mention, and maybe highlight this, Leo can talk about this too, is the registries that we have at the ICH. Uh, we have two registries. One, uh, the Women uh, su- Subcommittee for uh, for Women Health Issues and Thrombosis and Hemostasis has established to look at um, those who were previously diagnosed with protein C deficiency in uh, pregnancy or before for pregnancy. We're still collecting data on this, and this is available at the ICH REDCap website. So we encourage people to participate if they can. From uh, Canada, Europe, uh, multinational, uh, it will be nice to see how people manage these cases uh, across the globe. And then I will leave Leo, Leo to speak about uh, the other registry. Thank you very much, Maha. Yes, um, we have a now almost five-year-old registry, and because of the rarity of these conditions, uh, we are hopeful to be able to present something within high 20s or uh, 30 patients at the upcoming uh, ISTH in Montreal 2023. Uh, We invite 
if you have any interest in collaborate or know about the case that we can reach out to send us an, e in, in, excuse me, an email at npf.registry at sickkids.ca, that would be the way to contact the ongoing efforts from ISGH for uh, capturing any case that occurs on this globally. I will uh, second uh, Dr. Um, Othman's uh, comment related to the tremendous burden that these cases represent, well, to the patient themselves and families. Uh, these patients not uncommonly develop uh, really long-term sequelae that involved a need for them to continuously be seen in a hospital setting, including orthopedic uh, services, plastic surg uh, surgery uh, services, um, hematology services, etc. cetera. Uh, it's, it's really a huge effort, particularly because uh, of the, the fear slash guilt that may also occur to some of these parents and the psychological support and counseling they would require. Uh, but after all of this and after all that is said and done, this is a condition that if quickly identified, the patients can be completely normal. We are following, we have a spectrum of patients that would have lost because of undetected condition with intracranial hemorrhage, and the parents split. To another example, we currently have someone that almost lost uh, her leg and now at a cost of, uh, I'd say, somewhere between $300,000 and $400,000 a year. She is doing completely fine. She only lost vision to one eye and she her brain has been intact and it, it has been tremendous. So uh, this is a very... Uh, uh, important topic, particularly because professionals may see this never or only once in their career. So yeah. uh, thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about this in the podcast. Absolutely, Leo. Thank you so much for those final words. And I would like to maybe on behalf of you and I to thank all the co-authors on this paper, uh, many experts around the world, uh, especially the first author, Dr. Adrian uh, Minford, who actually tirelessly worked with me on, you know, getting that paper together, completed and going through the revision process at JTH uh, to, until it was accepted and it is in the uh, presented form. So thank you so much. Thanks, David and Jamil for having us and uh, it's a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you both for taking the time. It's great to have you on the on the podcast today and uh, look forward to getting it broadcast. And I want to thank our listeners for listening to Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. And if you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at info at thrombosiscanada.ca. And please subscribe so that you're notified about the release of new episodes. And don't forget to check out our website for education programs, clinical tools, and guides. Um, also, please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. And thank you, Jamil, for joining me in this uh, interview today. And uh, all the best to all of you. Take care. Thanks, everyone.